Suéltame gorila, que me suelte gorila, suéltame gorila, que me suelte gorila, suéltame gorila, que me suelte gorila. I'm joined by, I almost dropped a cup. That a cup was, of water. A cup of water. Almost ruined it all. <laughs> so to my right I have Vi. My heart. Heart. And to her left we have. Andrea Hoxley. Andrea Hoxley and. Emily Afler. Emily Afler. That's a cool last name. Afler. I've never heard that one before. Like the tower. The Afler, Afler Tower. Ah. Someday. <laughs> and you guys are LVR. You're yes. the startup that is. Putting together, I think, some really cool content. Uh, the world's first virtual reality 360 talk show, I believe, right? Mm -hmm. um, Although we are not actually a startup, we are a research group. Oh my God! So we don't have to worry it. about you know the startup the business plan, VC funding, money part. We we get to worry about actually digging in there and doing research and then sharing it. Wow. So so. Let me just dig in a little bit deeper on that research aspect. How does that work? What, who is this research for? How does that, uh, you know, how does your knowledge become money for someone else? I know that's a weird, that's, that's a weird way of saying it, but like, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what differentiates research from business is that like money will happen with all of the things in the world, all the knowledge in the world, but we don't need a direct line to it and we don't need to justify the research we're doing with any sort of business plan. Yeah. So we choose what we want to do. Um, I guess I'm the director of the research group so you could say that I decide and make all the decisions but you know no. so far it's just obvious what wants to be done. There's so much in the world of VR. There's so much low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. so there's no lack of, of things to explore. Yeah um, and why did you choose a talk show in specific to to focus on for now your energies. I don't think we're focusing our energy on the talk show, but we are. We are doing a talk show. Yeah. So what sorts of other things are you are you doing? So uh, because this is so sort of improvised, like I didn't get you guys this full <laughs> research out. You you can hear it now in the podcast. Like I am struggling to figure out. Like <laughs> all right, where am I? Um, you know, we um, one of the main focuses in the group is how to make content yeah. for VR. So. That includes long-form content, it includes GIFs, it includes stop motion, it includes, uh, we've made uh, more interactive pieces in Unity, we're making a player where we can um, develop and change and, and um, work on our own ideas about what a, a video player will need to be in the future on the web of VR, um, what interactive functions will it need to be instead of just stop and skip forward and play, like, what are the uh, fundamental functionalities that are integral to VR? What, um, how do you edit? How do you uh, make content that people are interested in? What is going to be better for VR than was uh, in flat screens? Things like that. Like that's really the place that we're focused on. Like what makes this content different? How do we develop it? Like how do we push the medium forward? All those kinds of things. Very cool. Uh, so there's, I, you guys have your hands in a lot of things. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's crazy. Um, that's an interesting perspective to me to think about a research a VR research group uh, and you're coming from a standpoint where you're not trying to make money you, you're, I feel like you guys are actually doing this to push the limits of knowledge right like mm -hmm. I think that's that's very valuable because I was I, I come I walk in with the impression like all right where does 
where does the money come from? Like, these guys? like, where is the... So what's the goal? Like, is there an ultimate goal for you guys as a research group? Like, what are you guys trying to achieve eventually? Like, um, again, we want to figure out what the content is going to be. So if we were just focusing on producing video without trying to get our hands in forms of editing and the player aspect also, then we wouldn't actually know what video could be because we'd be stuck with players that don't do what maybe VR players need to do. Yeah. Uh, so that's why we have our hands in all the pies right now. Um, but there, there's no ultimate goal. Again, we're not trying to make money. Um, right now we are fully funded by SAP and they have their own thing they're doing. They're not going to suddenly switch into doing virtual reality, but instead of them doing that, they can have a small research group that does that for them and then kind of keep track of everything going on uh, through us. Interesting. What are the... Just jumping right into it, and Andrea, hopefully you can provide me with some insight as well because I want to get everyone to talk. Uh, what are the challenges uh, that you guys are facing in terms of getting 360 video running? Like, What are some of the most obvious things that you're dealing with these days with that? On the production end, uh, I would say everything that you use to make a video is flat biased. Mm -hmm. MP4s, the compression, the, the packaging, the, the video editing software, the effects editing software, all that stuff is to be put on a flat screen. Yeah. And, and none of it works. Not yeah. just flat, but rectangular. Yeah. And it's rectangle. So it's like everything that we do, I, mean, I went on a rant on Twitter about this, everything we do has to get like torn apart and smushed into a rectangle which ruins a bunch of the things. And uh, like Andrea has you, you wrote about like the, the projection wrapping thing and like and like you know we, we talk a lot about like how do you save a pixel here or there, but like really what needs to happen is we need to have native file formats and native editing and native like uh, make 360 3D video a thing on its own that is separate from flat video, which is you know one of the things that we're trying to, to do. But there's a lot of other problems, especially like in the the web side of players and stuff that we're having problems with file sizes and stuff like that. How do you guys divide up work? Who's who takes what roles? Who does what in in the team? Um, I'm the director. I do a lot of the math type theory stuff that shows the direction that might be theoretically possible and what might be interesting to work on. I'm the producer, so I shoot. Or I made our first cameras. Um, I shoot and have developed all of the workflow for stitching, and um, I do all the editing and all that stuff. Cool. And what are you up to these days? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we Andre is our developer, um, who wrote the player that we are currently using. Um, the web player, the first web player for VR video, cool. um, currently running in the experimental version, the web VR version of Firefox, and gets all of the, Andrea, can you make our player do this? How about we write this? No, we want to do a cube projection now, and also we need more things and functionality for the player. Yeah, I actually think I'm the only person who says that I want to do a compute projection now. <laughs> no, I, I want to. You have me on board. Andre's been arguing for cube projection uh, forever. Yeah. Cube projection, can you ex explain that, how that works? Uh, so right now, our videos, because like Emily said, we, uh, we're recording video in all directions, and then we're turning that into what's basically a sphere of video. 
but because we need to save the video in a flat format, uh, we're using, and you can't turn a sphere into like just flat without like squishing something. Uh, we've been using a projection called like a rectangular projection, which is what most people doing video are using right now. Uh, the problem with the rectangular projection is that the top and the bottom have a huge amount of uh, distortion and the it's very not even also as far as how the data is stored on the projection like because the top of the video is at the pole like the pole has lots of information and compared to the center um, it also, when you're going to go play black, using a rectangular projection actually makes it notably slower because you have to do arc tangents in order to figure out where you're looking, what part you should be showing on the screen. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're doing like a couple arc tangents per pixel, that is really inefficient. So when with VR, you really want to get your frame rate up, and uh, the rectangular projection really isn't good for that. At the same time, if you look at cube maps, that's something that's been very popular in graphics, and a lot of GPUs are specialized for cube maps. And so you could theoretically export, or you should be able to export, a video to a bunch of like squares, like a cube format, and then use that projection, which should be both faster in playback, it should have fewer points of large distortion, it might look weirder flat, but that's not how you're looking at it anyways. No. Um, and right now, we haven't been doing it. I think a lot of people haven't been doing it just because it's not as easy to get files into that cube format. Um, the tools that we've been using to get the files into a rectangular format won't do a cube. Um, but I think that both, the, the, like my vote, and I wrote a long blog post that's on the website about this, is for using cube projections to store video data rather than the rectangular projection. How did you reach that conclusion? What was your thinking that made you get to that we should use cube projection? Um, I mean, I think that there are a bunch of different options, and some of them, like, we could keep dividing up, and you could use, like, some kind of geodesic projection where you divide up into, like, tons and tons of tiny triangles going around and eventually getting closer and closer to sort of a native spherical format. Um, but the cube projection, especially for right now, has an advantage that cube maps are already really heavily used, and uh, graphics processors and such already have stuff in them intended to speed up cube maps. So, um, and I think that compared to what we're using right now, cube maps just have much less overall, like, Distortion. There's no single points that have like way more information than other points. So when you have to, when you have a file that you have to store information on, and your file can only be so big, and you really want this much information density at every point, uh, you really want your information density more even. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the cube is a fairly good balance, and I think that it is one that's also just going to be easier to actually do. Are you able to shine some light on some of the downsides of using cubes, potentially? Um, well, I think I already talked about why some of why I think people aren't using it right now. Um, other downsides of using cubes, Emily talked about how what we really would want is a native spherical format. The cube is not really a native spherical format, it's a cube. Um, so, 
like when you're thinking like, oh, let's stop smashing our video, our VR video files into formats designed for rectangular video like MP4, that's it, that's really just another way of smashing stuff back into that file format. And um, in the long run, I don't think that like in 10 years from now that people are going to be like, let me go download my MP4 to watch my VR video. Like it just seems really unlikely that we're going to keep using exactly that same format for video. Mm -hmm. um, and if we were to come up with a better native format, then it's likely that that would take over. Um, QMAP is just the best possible way to smush your spherical video into that video. Yeah, at least using the current tech, it yeah. seems. Yeah. Wow. An advantage of QMAP also is that squares fit really well into rectangles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so like one of the advantages of like the QMAP over some of the others, like a really geodesic thing with lots of triangles, is you, now you have a bunch of triangles. <laughs> that you can yeah. stuck onto your rectangle. And you could, you know, mix them up and squish them in there. Yeah. But the more singularities you introduce, the more room there is for lots of potential problems. How uh, how big do these files end up being? I know this is a random question, but like when you film something in 360, um, how big are the files and do they weigh you down in terms of... Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Mm. Um, the the longest shoot we've done so far was a 12-camera shoot that totaled about an hour of footage, which ended up being um, around 800 gigabytes of footage. Um, so that's the total, um, like, shooting quantity. Like, clearly you're never going to, like, have one, someone download the entire shooting quantity of your videos. And as you stitch them and compress them and editing and everything, like, you're, you're smushing them into a smaller and smile, smaller file size. But, yeah, just straight out of the camera, raw, like, that's a huge problem at the moment. But, I mean, compared to, we've, we've talked a lot about, like, light field cameras and the, the new Lytra and me being able to, like, use that kind of thing in making um, pseudo uh, 3D environments instead of just sort of the, um, the two, one sphere for each eye, which is sort of a trick that makes 3D, which is what we're currently using. Um, then you're talking about, like, the actual final product being hundreds of gigabytes um, as opposed to, you know, like, what you download off of YouTube being, like, you know, a couple hundred megabytes or something. So this is when you know when when you're doing or you're covering or you're learning about something that is completely new to everyone because it's like um, it's like how the computer started off in as these giant rooms, right? That or uh, giant buildings, and now it's like we carry one in our pockets. I feel like this is in that parallel where this is massive files, 800 gigabytes. That's that's. Just about as much as I can carry in my laptop. Like yeah. that's insane. That is that's and so, and and once you get to the mo the minimal or the like the final product, how big is that file at that? It point? depends on how long, obviously, mm -hmm. but um, they're usually like between one and two gigabytes wow. for a video file. Let me ask you about files that we actually post on our website end up being smaller. So um, just because like you're not really necessarily going to stream a two gigabyte file, <laughs> um, and it, it like. And I think a lot of people, when they watch the videos, they don't realize that the entire, like, everything 360 all around for both eyes is all in the same, like, video image file. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, wow, it looks really pixelated. It's like, yeah, because if you wanted that kind of resolution everywhere that you look, this file would have to be really, really large. And we have that file, but you probably can't stream it. <laughs> um. It's crazy. 
Do, do you, the Lytro camera thing just sparked something in my head that I find, uh, how, is it, uh, is it possible to utilize 12 different Lytro cameras and, you know, just set it up how, how they set up GoPros and see if you can, I mean, w what would that look like? Uh, obviously, the file would be huge, but, like, would so that enhance? So, one problem is that no one has tried that because okay. Lytros are really, really expensive. <laughs> and until Lytros starts handing out the cameras, people like us, like, that's, it's prohibitively expensive. It's like $4,000 or something? Yeah, a piece. Yeah. Um, and then the other problem is the file format that Lightroom uses is proprietary. So there are no stitching formats that I can, there are no stitching algorithms that I can use that are capable of sticking Lightroom images together because none of them, they don't, they're not compatible, right? Like I can't read their files. So yes, it's possible, not at the moment. <laughs> okay. And it's unclear how big of an advantage you would get in the end. Right. Um, I think in the future for video, what people are going to actually do is use a bunch of regular cameras, build a 3D model of the world, and then reconstruct what you're actually seeing from that 3D model. Mm -hmm. And that can include, eventually it'll include eye tracking, and you'll be able to, you know, do focus and uh, focal depth. But when that happens, uh, there's not much benefit from having a light field camera anyway, because you can reconstruct all that information when you have the information from multiple cameras. Are you referring to, referring to something like Project Tango where you have your phone or you have some sort of equipment map out a room in 3D and then you can pop down characters? Or how, how do, you, um, do you envision that? Kind of like that, um, but... I think Project Tango, when it maps it out, you're like moving the thing around, and I think the idea is it would really be live capture of the whole scene, um, oh, rather than yeah. like pre-rendering the scene and then like putting people into it afterwards. Yeah, right now there's nothing that can do it live. Oh, because, yes, that there isn't really. Yeah, and there's there's nothing, there, it just doesn't exist, and it will, but it... Doesn't like it absolutely it. will, and and people are working on this, but it, it doesn't right now. Yeah. Um. And if if there were a light field camera that actually captured a spherical light field, that would also be great. Mm -hmm. Um. But sticking a bunch of light field cameras doesn't uh, together doesn't do that. Yeah. Um. It gives you many little light fields, and you can use that information somehow to try and build a model of your world or stitch them together. But uh, that doesn't fill in the gaps in the light field between cameras. What you really want is an actual spherical light field camera. So my dream of watching the World Cup live with an Oculus Rift um, is, 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 is going to have to be put on hold because there isn't the technology yet developed that can do that, that can live stream something from wherever in the world and I can put in a Rift and I can be in that 3D space. You can do that, yeah. but you can only do it in mono. And it can't be done on high quality. I see. So, like, there are these new, like, little, um, what, not, are they called bubble cameras? Is that what they're Yeah, the bubble cam. Yeah, so yeah, that is capable. Um, there's, there's actually a few things out right now. Immersive media makes yeah. a camera designed exactly for streaming, mm -hmm. including audio. It's uh -huh. mono. Um, it doesn't, you won't be able to move your head. You won't have a 3D model of the scene you can move your head around in, but you will get a live video feed. That does exist. Okay. And it will exist soon for stereo, I'm sure. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that certainly that is something you can do, but it's not going to have the depth, which is really what the advantage of the stuff we've been talking about there is to try and get that depth information captured at the same time. Um, on the other hand, given the way a lot of 
video for sports is filmed, it might be kind of an aerial view where the depth wasn't as important. I don't know where they would put the cameras. Mm. It, would be, it, would, it might be interesting if they had cameras in like different places and then you could choose which camera you wanted to look at. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm very excited of, for the idea of putting one of these cameras and live streaming it off of the International Space Station. Uh, just in, in anybody yeah. in the world can just plug in and, oh, there's my house. Uh, I want one on Mars. Yeah? The, the best thing at, in all of the fancy dancy demos at Oculus Con was the Mars rover still mono panoramic image of being on Mars. I'm like, this is all I want from VR. I will spend any amount of money to get any VR headset if I can just, like, put it on and be on Mars. Yeah, I, uh, they should, I, I'm serious, I feel like we should really figure out a way to send, like, crowdfunded rovers to the polar ice caps of Mars and start drilling and see if we can find, like, Martian narwhals or <laughs> seals. I don't know, it'd be kind of cool. Um, but I'm with you, I'm with you. <laughs> what, what other frontiers do you see VR pushing the boundaries in? So obviously space, but where, where else do you guys think that VR will be, you know, sort of rewriting the script for? Well, obviously video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basic human communication. Yeah, and I think we didn't mention before, but like this whole area out there is all a research group funded by SAP and it's the communications design group. So, to some extent, part of, like, the whole VR video, like, trying to improve different ways that you can um, do this stuff um, is somewhat with, like, the whole goal of the group is how, is, what is the future of communications? How can you make communications better? Um, and there's all kinds of communication, and there's all kinds of, like, what is video mean when it's all everywhere around you? When you have to either do something to hide the camera or you're going to be able to see it where your camera crew is in the scene. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a big challenge, right? Like, how Hollywood is going to be able to tackle this, like, especially because you think about big film-making experiences, like big movies, they require huge budgets and a lot of people. Um, and a lot of post-production. So that's where most of this stuff is going to... Because you can go into a, a video and mask stuff out. You can yeah, you can hide the, the thing. I mean, I think that for a lot of the big things, um, like we like to try and record everywhere at once. But I think that for a lot of stuff, like for Hollywood, they're actually probably going to be recording half the scene and then two half scenes and stitching them together at mm -hmm. the end for a lot of their stuff. Like, you could make Transformers in VR very easily. It's like, all CG anyway. Yeah, most of Transformers, or for that matter, Gravity. The movie Gravity? Yeah. That whole movie is CG. There's no reason that you couldn't just stick it in a headset and let people look around. Like, But the, the problem isn't being able to render the whole scene. It's what does Sandra Bullock have to do to convince you that it's real when she's three inches away from your face and you can look away whenever you want? Mm -hmm. Like... What, how do you? What's the difference between the way someone looks on a huge screen, the way they act, their facial expressions, the melodrama they put into it, how they use their voice? What's the difference between that and how how a professional actor will act in VR movies, yeah. stuff like that? And things like uh, what does it mean to frame the scene when there's no frame? Hmm. Um, Please explain more. My my mind is currently. I think being Emily alone. can actually talk more about this with her actual. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
So in film school, a lot of what you learn is, like, storyboarding, right? When you think of storyboarding, you think of, like, okay, we're going to do an establishing shot, we're going to do a detail shot, we're going to do a two shot, we're going to do something over someone's shoulder. We're gonna, And you use that kind of, the, the, um, the story-making texture of filmmaking is a lot about what the size of the shot is and where you're placing it in relationship to the scene. Mm -hmm. And you use that texture to lead an audience through a story. Well, if I take away your ability to literally frame, to like put up a frame in front of you and like decide what the audience gets to look at, instead you have to think about something totally different, which I've been thinking about as like um, a mirrored ball. Like if you're holding a mirrored ball in your hand, and you had to think about everything on the surface of that ball is inside of your scene. So you're no longer thinking about frames. You're thinking about spaces. You're thinking about places. You're thinking about um, the audience um, being giving them the, the right and the freedom to look away without disengaging from the action. So maybe people are having a conversation, and I'm really interested in that conversation, but like maybe looking directly at the people makes me slightly uncomfortable because maybe it's a, a very intimate scene or something. So giving them something to look at where there is something else meaningful um, that adds to the fabric of the story without um, feeling like you're losing their attention. There's been, I feel like there's a lot of talk about people who are like, oh, well, if if, uh, if your audience starts looking at the, the wallpaper or something, then you're losing their attention. Hmm. Well... That might be true, or it might be that there is more information in the space than just people talking. Yeah, that uh, the that question is 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 really like a I feel like it's this puzzle, and it's like whoever cracks the code will will most likely you know create amazing things. The thing about filmmaking that really interests interests me with VR is those problems like that, like how do you handle that framing. And in my mind, you know, I, I think that stereo audio will become extremely, extremely important as mm-hmm. the technology advances. And perhaps we might have to rethink how we, like, put together stories and how we tell stories all together. I, I sort of imagine myself, and this is a total rant, uh, like, imagine myself as being the protagonist of my, in my, of my own story. But reality is, it's like we're all protagonists in our own stories, in our own worlds, and perhaps you know through VR we can sort of witness not through witness the story not through just this one person, but through many interactions happening at the same time. And perhaps you don't have to pay attention to this particular what's happening behind me, um, but it might add replay value because then I can rewatch the movie and see what happened here. I don't know. It, 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 it's extremely interesting problem to crack because I think Hollywood is quite stagnant in terms of innovation. I feel like they're over-relying on um, special effects and I don't know. Yeah, and there's some ways in which uh, VR film is going to be closer to reality uh, than to old flat film. Um, where right now we're talking in a space and this seems very natural and you're not like, oh, we're having a conversation, but what if I could just turn around and look at something else? Right? That's not a concern to you right now, and yet it is to people when they're watching a VR video, and I find that kind of odd and very interesting and worth thinking deeply about that we have a set of audience expectations, we have a language that people understand in current filmmaking, and we have to break free of some of that stuff while taking the good stuff with us. But 
we have had people tell us that like they felt rude turning away from us while watching our video because you know they this is part of why we're doing a podcast uh sorry not a podcast a um talk Talk show um is because we think that this sitting around and talking is very natural to people uh and it's so natural to people that they feel the social expectation and we've heard from people being like oh i felt so i i want to look behind me but i feel like it would be rude to (laughs) right it's rude if i just kind of turn around and start looking at stuff um but soon i don't know how people's psychological relationship is going to change and how it's going to be with virtual spaces yeah but it's something we think about a lot. You should mess with people. Like you should, if if the HND turns away from the people talking, you, they, you know, like you should like trigger something that'll like, hey, dude, yeah. we, that's rude. You're ignoring us. Like I don't know. Uh, speaking of interactivity in filmmaking um, in VR, what are the sort of challenges about that? Like I feel like that would add another layer of value to filmmaking experiences, being able to somehow interact with objects. Uh, what are your experiences with that so far? Yeah, and this is why we need to be a team that does both making the video part of the content and the player part of the content. Yeah. So the advantage to making our own player is that we have like a lot of ideas that are like, oh, well, if you look at the door for a while, it will take you to a scene on the other side of the door that should trigger when you do that. And if you're just using a player somebody else wrote, um, really, like a lot of what's going to do that is going to be in the player. Um, so writing your own player lets you add certain levels of interactivity more easily than just like having an MP4 file and saying, "Now my MP4 file has magic interactivity." <laughs> my I think my dream is that like I th- one of our goals has really been like. YouTube allowed people, and web videos allowed people, this huge explosion of creativity in video. There's tons of people doing tons of awesome things, and I would love to see that for VR video. Um, So I was thinking recently about, like, what is something that is, like, part Squarespace, where it's, like, this giant WYSIWYG editor where people get to make all these interesting little sites, but it's just, like, pieces they put together. Like, they don't have to code themselves. Mm -hmm. And part YouTube, where they can, like, make channels and videos and, this, and like how do you smush that together into like people being able to make their own interactivity in VR video yeah. um, I, I, I don't know I think that's an interesting way to frame it where you know like we can modify our own player because we have a magic arm dream but like not everyone's going to have one of those so like <laughs> we need to make it easy enough for other people to be able to, to generate their own interactivity so that's yeah that's what I'm thinking uh, a magic Andrea. That is, <laughs> that is the, your weapon. It's uh, very good to have a magic choice. Andrea. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Man, um, that's cool. What is, uh, so the problem with that, like, I, or, or the challenge really, I think, in terms of getting, of creating the YouTube creation tool VR, I feel like is, is definitely, uh, the, well, there's definitely hardware. Like, how do you, what will be the hardware that will allow you to be, you know, the YouTube of VR? Like, you know, will it be a new form of camera? I, I mean, are the current cameras that people are using, are they sufficient? What are they lacking? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> no. This is just, like, not sleeping. Right? <laughs> no, it's All it's right. in there. It's in there. Cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Everything needs to change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's... I, I like to think that some of the, like, stuff, like, you know... Bubble Cam and 316 Cam that people are coming out with are actually things that lay people could get in, and it wouldn't be stereo, but I mean, it's going to record the video, and it's 
going to stitch it for you. And if you just want to experiment with making video and you want to, you know, record your birthday party for your little kid, or you want to just, like, talk and start your own VR talk show, that, you know, it doesn't have the level of quality that you might want for a lot of things. But I actually think that it may be good enough for people to start getting involved and doing this stuff at home. Yeah, I don't true. think... Like, I think that... I mean, a lot of people are going around and they're recording stuff and putting it on YouTube or whatever, and they're using their phone camera. And I don't think that it's going to be that much worse than... Like, it's not going to be like, oh, well, they didn't take the amazing thing. Like, where we would love cameras to be is not where they are at now. But I think where they're at a point where people could actually use them, I think they're almost really or, close. like, really close. Yeah. Like, I was... Yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I am a person who spent the first nine months of my YouTube channel shooting on my phone. Like, I can totally understand, like, why it's important to just have anything that will shoot in VR yeah. to be able to use and experiment with. Like, just being able to record and then, like, sticking it in an editor and being like, okay, well, what do you do with all this uh, is, like, is going to be really important. So I'm really excited for those cameras to come out. And they're not that expensive, which is really exciting. Yeah. Uh, the There was something you you mentioned a, a, a way back earlier uh, about GIFs in VR. Um, that, that like, I, I was like, I, I need to store that somewhere <laughs> in my temporary memory because I want to bring that up later. Um, and now this is the time. Why GIFs in VR? Um, and tell me more about them. Like, what's what's going on there? So I think it might be more like stop motion in VR, but when you only have 12 frames, you might as well put it into, like, something kind of like a GIF format. Oh. Um, but it was more, I think it's more like experimenting with stop motion as a medium than, and I think... Uh, thanks to Emily, our whole office has a little obsession lately with creating a <laughs> I've been um, spreading the gift everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, it's just like so weird to me because it's like such an old medium. Like, <laughs> they're talking about a medium that was like invented probably before we were born. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're bringing it back. Yeah. And it's already open and free and yeah. not yeah. patented anymore. Like it's, it's That's so, how old it's it is. It's so old that it was patented. The compression algorithm and no longer is under patent. Wow. It is that old. Wow. Um, one of the things we were noticing is that like people always feel like they're missing something. There's so much surface area to look at in a VR video that you're like, oh my god, I have to watch, I have to like look everywhere all the time. And yeah. it's like, okay, well why don't we just make a thing that acknowledges that your desire to look everywhere all the time. Yeah. So we got all of our coworkers to help us make the first uh, VR GIF, which is in our library, and it was stop motion animation where we, we designed everything to go for 12 frames, and we, you know, took a picture every frame and, and played it, you know, like we implemented looping on the on our player so that we could just loop this thing over and over again so that you could just sit in there for as long as you wanted and... You could look at one thing and be done, or you could try and find, you know, all, um, like one of those uh, seek and find yeah. or whatever games. I where you, like, try and find all the things, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, and I actually think that not like literally GIF, but you know, short stop motion looping animations are right now kind of perfect for VR, mm -hmm. um, especially because if you want high resolution images playing, that's just so expensive. Um, computationally, it's it's hard to render all those frames and put them in your headset and like just the amount of information for playing a video, um, you know, overheats your phone instantly. All of those problems, but if it loops, 
then that solves some of those problems. You can have much higher resolution images for smaller file size. You don't have to feel like you're wasting all of the part of the video that you're not looking at because you might be looking at it later. And you also like don't necessarily have to do it as a video, and it turns out a lot of things are just better at showing a bunch of pictures or a single animated picture mm -hmm. than to play back a video um, like many frames per second. How do you guys envision the implementation of something like this would work out? Like, what would it be? I'm navigating a website in VR, and there's a button, and I click on it, and it'll a sphere will pop out, and I'll be able to peer, peek inside of it, and oh, there's a, a GIF happening here. Or, I mean, what sort of interface sort of ideas you have, you know, in your mind as to how this implement, how this would be implemented? We do have VR video bubbles, which is sort of like that, although it's not on a website. It's just a Unity application with a bunch of spheres with video on them that you can like look into. Um, I think navigating the web, if you chose a video, it probably would not be like, oh, you picked to go look at a video. Now there's a sphere, and you have to actually go look into it. I think it'll probably just play the video when mm. you click, I want to play a video, um, mm -hmm. because... I think everyone will get annoyed if every time you tried to play a video, it was like, okay, here's your video in a sphere. You can go look at it now. Walk um, 30 meters in that direction and <laughs> put your head inside of it. Yeah, I know yeah. what you're saying. That's good for a dedicated experience, uh, but not for every time. Yeah. Uh, I see. Yeah, I think like video bubbles is an interesting experiment in like how you might tell a story through like a bunch of like exploring different videos or um, a way to show spherical video, but as like either a storytelling medium or like something more interactive. But I don't think that if you were like if imagining like the YouTube of the future on your VR web, that it's going to be what most things are going to be like. Right, and also it, we think about the web as being flat, right? Because it's currently flat, but the VR on the web is websites are going to be it's going to be a place that you go. Like, it's going to be a site that you are surrounded by. So yeah. when you, I don't know, when you open up the giant trunk of videos in some pirate ship on the internet and you, like, fish out a video, or like, there's going to be lots of different ways other than just, like, sort of menu interactions to play videos. Um, but then it, the idea that you won't really think of it as a sphere, like, we think of it that way because, like, we understand math and we're the ones making everything. But you don't have to think about it that way. It can literally just be, like, a place that you put on your face. Like, it doesn't have to be... The sphere idea is just sort of, like, that's the computational half. Like, it doesn't have to be the menu interactive, um, the half where people actually see it and interact with it. Interesting. Tell me about your um, experience with Unity so far. How do you... I've, I've never... Uh, I played with Unity, but I was not aware that you could use it for the things that you are using it for. Um, how is it? I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I've been on Unreal Engine for it, it's it's okay uh, for the monkey <laughs> ape stuff that I do. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. So the interesting yeah. thing with Unity is that we have had great difficulty actually getting a Unity license. Really? Yeah. So we only video played with Unity bubbles. for a few days. Yeah, Video yeah. Bubbles was played within a few days when Vi's brother was around and he has Unity license and he's doing like some cool like VR games with Unity. Yeah, um, and yeah, and we attempted to get uh, Unity licenses and we have been attempting to get them for months. 
So yeah, we'll know more in the future. <laughs> the, the biggest problem I think with unity right now is, well, I think there's two problems. One of them is that it's the lag is just just insane. Yeah. Like we have a problem with lag in our player because you're doing like two pass distortion, right? Yeah. Well, well, the okay. lag, the lag in our player is also because web VR lag is yeah kind of insane right now. And but so. but unity, you're so far from the. Like, for example, if you're trying to texture a video onto a bubble in Unity and then play that video, you're so far then from the bubble that, like, when you turn your head, it goes, uh, 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 like, there's a lot of judder. Yeah. Um, but it's very easy, right? Like, it's easy to get a Unity scene into VR because they're already 3D. Like, it, it's, you know, it's, it's not that hard to do. But the other problem is things like people wanting to use Unity apps as you know, like a thing that you run inside of VR, like if you wanted to use it for an operating system or if you wanted to use it for um, VR or web applications or things like that. Like there's a, the Unity is great at some things, but it's also like really slow and really expensive, computationally expensive at other things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we like it for prototyping. We like it for testing out ideas. Yeah. Um, but that is what we like it for. <laughs> <laughs> And also, like, I mean, a lot of people are doing work with Unity, and Oculus is working really hard with Unity to try and make the it better, like have less lag. Yeah. Because they native know, support. yeah, native support. Because they know that a lot of their developers are using Unity, and that having Unity as an option for that people can like realistically use uh, is going to make a lot more people create things. Just because Unity, it really it makes coding kind of so easy that you're not really sure sometimes whether you're doing code <laughs> anymore or if you're just like dropping, dragging and dropping things and being like, um, like, I don't know. Yeah, I think if we see, you know, the VR's next killer app in Unity, um, we might see the potential for it to be that in Unity, but then it's going to come out of Unity and, and be made natively somewhere else that's faster and yeah. has more uh, capability. Yeah, I think, I think that Unity has abstracted it so much that while it is possible to get good speed out of something that you've written in Unity, you, it can be hard to know what you have to do in order to actually get that result. Yeah. Um, even like non-VR apps that I've seen written in Unity, a lot of them are very slow wow. because uh, it's easy to make something, but it's not easy to make something fast. Wow. Especially now that we're talking about like Gear VR and, yeah. and mobile applications for VR. Uh, and Unity is great at some mobile applications, but trying to get Unity to function on an iPhone is just, like, a nightmare. Hmm. Like, just getting audio to run from Unity on mobile is, like, that's way harder than it should be. That's, like, a really, really simple problem. Hmm. Um, and it, that's just, like, in, you know, interacting with different um, phone operating systems and things like that. So there's there's a lot of problems to solve if, if Unity is going to be the thing that everyone uses for VR. Although it's worth noting that the Samsung Gear session at Oculus was all about developing with Unity for yeah. Samsung Gear. Mm -hmm. And they're like, these are all these demos that we were successfully able to get our frame rate up to par using Unity and definitely can be done. And these are what we had to do in order to make sure that we were able to do that. Yeah, um, th sorry, th you, you were saying. Um, and like some of the stuff is just, it's just because it's easy to make something, in, it's, again, it's all going back to it's easy to make something in Unity, but the trick is to get it to that speed. You, you, 
almost have to know some tricks. So you were at the talk, the Samsung Gear VR Unity yeah. talk. I was there too, and uh, the um, the thing that I that I sort of walked away from was this: the it's not a it's not a suggestion, it's not a piece of advice. It's like it's like you have to get. 60 frames per second. Like, there's no way around that. Uh, or 90 if I'm the one watching. Or it. 90. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can, can you run that on Gear VR? Is no. That, no. Okay. <laughs> I, was... I just I can't use the Gear VR at all. Really? I, for 30 seconds, I'm fine, and then it's flashing black and and whatever screen is supposed to be there so quickly that I start to feel like physically ill. Wow. This leads me. So I'm just gonna skip this question. I'm gonna lead lead to the next one, which is your impressions on the different versions of Oculus. Is this Oculus is this? Oculi. Oculi. <laughs> Oculus is, I don't know what to say, um, <laughs> prototypes, right? So, more, and also Morpheus. I mean, what? run me through your DK1 experience, your DK2, your Morpheus experience, and lead me to Crescent Bay. And I will start it off with, bye. All right. Um, I think that what you're doing in it makes a huge difference, and this is part of why fast iteration, easy to do stuff like Unity is going to be very important for Oculus and for VR. Um, Because as I said, that still panoramic flat image of Mars for Gear VR, the moment I saw that after like an hour of going through all these fancy little demos and like tech demos, I'm like, all right, whatever, this is kind of cool. And then that Mars demo, all right, this is simple and it's perfect. And this, I will spend money just to have this. And what I really, really want is just to film on the green screen and put ours on Mars. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I want. Um, I, I just, I want to be a Mars rover. Yeah. That is all I want in my life. Gear VR gives you that. Yeah, Gear VR does that for me. Whereas a lot of the other stuff, so it's not really the hardware, it's how the hardware is used. Mm-hmm. What have been your reactions to the actual hardware? What was your first reaction when you first tried DK1? And what was your reaction when you tried Crescent Bay, for example? Uh, well, none of the stuff fits my face, first of all. I have like this this narrow, small face, you know, things aren't quite in focus because I have to shift it around in my eyes in the sweet spot of the lens. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really annoying. That's going to have to change if they want a consumer product that they're selling to human beings and, and not... Kids. And kids. You know, like, I met people at Oculus Connect who were trying to do educational software for little kids, and it just never occurred to them that the Oculus does not actually fit on the face of, like, someone who's a half-sized person yeah. and whose eyes are definitely nowhere near the right distance apart. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so that's that's a huge problem. Um, so I had to always be, like, holding the thing to keep it from flopping downward or, you know, otherwise falling off of my head, um, which makes the experience not quite as good. Um, the tech is getting better. It's exciting to see it move so fast at Oculus. So... That's good. Yeah. To me, I felt like the um, the prototype, the Crescent Bay prototype, was what I wanted the DK2 to be. Yeah, like definitely the DK2. I feel like was almost disappointing when it, people first started getting it and when you first started playing with it. Um, like its resolution was still not so good that you couldn't see the pixels, even though you were like promised really really good resolution. And it came with so many cables that it took me, like, a really long time just to get it sorted out. Um, <laughs> and I just, like, in general, the experience when I got the DK2 was a little disappointing. I almost, like, I know that they were trying to get something out for all these people to use. But I almost wish that they had just been like, it's going to take us another year or, like, six months or something. And then just release the Crescent Bay demo as DK2. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm not... 
the DK2 feels like an intermediate step between the DK1 and Crescent Bay mm -hmm. that is both going to be really short and like if what you wanted to do was something you could do with the DK1 where like you don't need to care about position in space, then the DK2 is only it's like an intermediate step that's not really giving you anywhere near as much as you want. Um, so right. it's and like sort of a weird intermediate step where you wonder like did they just stop working on it because they didn't think it was that important? Did they really try to rush to get something out? Um, that still hasn't just, gotten out yeah, to a lot of people. Still no Linux XDK. Like I just it, it, the DK2, especially after seeing Crescent Bay, sort of felt like why why not just wait another six months or a year, however long it's going to take, and get the people who were interested in DK2 your next demo, which is like clearly like. I feel like between the DK1 and the DK2 there was a jump, but I feel like the jump between DK2 and my experience with Crescent Bay was much larger, even though to a decent extent it's a lot of the same technology where they just added more IR sensors and they increased the resolution of the screen. Mm -hmm. um, but it was sort of like Crescent Bay was what I was hoping for with DK2, yeah. and so DK2 was like... I've seen this, and I'll get to you in a second, Melixar, but I, I've seen this question going around a bit where they'll ask people, what is, if, if Alculus releases Crescent Bay as consumer version 1, do you think it's ready? No. Do you think no. it will no. be successful? Well, one, there's like 50 of them. Right. And they're handmade. <laughs> yeah. And you break them by taking them off. Right. Like... Uh, but no, I don't think it's okay. No, yeah. I mean, I think part of the idea, and part of the reason why, like, the DK2 feels like sort of in between stuff that's not enough, is that part of the idea of releasing these dev kits is to make sure that there's enough good content and there's, like, someone will maybe develop that killer app. But you're giving people hardware that, like, really isn't quite at what the final hardware is going to be. And so if you don't give someone that's some, that people something that's closer to the DK2 before they release DK2 to everyone, then I don't think... Like, there's not going to be that killer app because no one's had a chance to play and develop that killer app yet. So unless Oculus wants their thing to be a closed system where they're developing all the content, and that's clearly not where they're going, mm -hmm. um, I don't think that they could just release that to everybody without first releasing it to, like, a smaller audience of, like, developers and people who are really interested in it. Because I think when they release it to everybody, uh, it's going to be expensive, and if it doesn't have something that really people want it for, if there's like no real killer application that people need it for, people are not going to buy it just because it's cool. Mm -hmm. Like there needs to be some reason why you're buying something that's going to cost you know hundreds of dollars. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that people developing for the DK2 can't develop well enough for the Crescent Bay because it is enough different. So if I started developing right now and I'm and I have a DK2, do you think it's unwise to develop with DK2's specifics in mind? So I mean, I should think I be that more flexible? Any, I think you should have some like DK2 specifics in mind, but I think for any VR thing, um, it's wise to develop with the future in mind because it's iterating so fast and because Oculus isn't going to be the only player. And if you make your content something that only works on this one device. Um, then, like, you're potentially, like, you can't get yourself locked into a device that you know is going to be becoming obsolete. I see. Right? Yeah. Um, so you really want something that you know you'll be able to easily move to another device or that's really general. One of the reasons I like WebVR is 
uh, as a concept is that part of the idea is that the browser knows what the headset is, and the browser performs the distortion, so the developer really only has to be worried about the content and assumes that the browser can take the content and apply the correct distortion, which means that you have a two-pass process. Um, and it might be nice to be able to just get that distortion from the browser and then apply it yourself to a single pass to try and make it faster. But it also means that uh, you don't have to be as worried about like, oh, I'm developing it for this and it'll break for something else. And I think similar, like, I think you see it a lot, like, if you look at Samsung Gear VR, I mean, phones go obsolete every six months a year, and so you're going to imagine that device is going to change. So if you are developing specifically for just one device, then it's going to be a problem when there's a new device and it your thing is too specific, and I think you run that risk with anything, not just developing for DK2, but uh, developing for any headset, developing for like phone software you see, um, like especially if you're developing for Android and you run your demo and you only test it on two phones, well then you know that like it's going to break on someone else's phone out there. Like most of them might be perfect and someone's is going to be slightly different. And if you're developing too close, hard for DK2, then you know that it's just going to break on some other demo right. yeah. if you haven't. And imagining that there's going to be a single company that and a single product that is VR and everyone has that same HMD in the future is, I think, pretty unlikely. Yeah, I think the oh, uh, there's definitely going to be a lot to choose from in terms of HMDs, especially in the like short term. I, I, there's just so many out there right now. Um, the, the the thing that I'm I think about is how do you Develop something that can that isn't just putting all your eggs in that one basket, right? Like yeah. So Oculus's solution for this right now is to develop in Unity or with the Unreal Engine. Um, our solution for this is WebVR. Uh, the browsers are gonna do it for you. Like WebGL sort of technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, actually, we have at this point when we first when I first wrote the player, uh, there was no like right now Firefox and Chrome have started experimental. Uh, browsers that take that VR input in that didn't exist. So the first version of the player, I was actually using a plugin that took the Oculus information in. And um, the amount of code change actually to move it from using that plugin to using the browser, and part because the browser was done really well, so it's pretty easy to like throw in with maybe a day of like, like it was actually not that hard. And I think that's kind of where you want to be. Mm -hmm. um, is, um, but yeah, like the easiest way is definitely to use something like Unity or WebVR that's going to abstract away the exact details of what the distortion you need to apply is, so you don't need to figure it out yourself and apply it mm -hmm. and check which device is being used and and check all these things before you can show uh, what you're trying to show. Did you suffer any sim sickness while you're trying the Crescent Bay? Yes. You felt sim sickness. Yes. Oh, okay. Wow. Hmm. I'll get back to you on that. Let, let, I want to get your impressions on DK1 through Crescent Bay. Or just give me the quick rundown. What do you... Um, the first time I tried the DK1, I was underwhelmed. Um, I get sickness really quickly, and the DK1 was, uh, yeah, was like immediately. Um, and, you know, screen door, all that stuff. Uh, the first time I tried the DK2... They put 
I was in the little like demo office and I like leaned over and looked into the plant and I was like, yes, this is awesome. And then it immediately broke our, the only computer that we could run it on. Like, like broke the computer so bad that I had to like rewrite it to a disk image, like, like broke the computer. And, uh, I was so mad that I, I, I directed that anger at the DK2. I was like, you ruined my computer. Well, I think ah. it's not entirely misdirected because yeah. no, I was plugging the DK2 into that computer that caused it to break, yeah. which is another reason why that is definitely not ready for release to consumers. It happened to a bunch of other people we've heard from also. Just right, like, right, so just computer wreckage everywhere. Um, and then Gear VR, uh, I thought is very interesting, could be a really great application. I cannot use it whatsoever. I'm immediately going to get sick. Uh, if they can't get the screen flashing to be faster than that to the point where I can't see it, that's just like that's just not tenable. Um, and I wasn't the only person who could see it. I was definitely having a harder time standing it, but like people, a lot of people mentioned being able to see it on the edges of their vision, um, which I feel like just breaks the experience. Yeah, I could only see it at the edges of my vision. I I could see it if I was looking for it, but. It, didn't bother me that much. Like I really like your VR as a concept. Like I like the idea of phone VR as being a place for VR to go. Um, and so I don't know if I'm a little biased by that. <laughs> like I'm so sad that we don't have one because I'm like that is the thing I want to develop for. Why do I not have one? Yeah, yeah um, I want one. And then but I really like won't a... be able to see anything I make. If I can just look at it for a few seconds and then take it off. Uh, and then Kazengov I thought was interesting. Um, oh, actually, I should say, I also tried the Project Morpheus, which yeah. is still my favorite headset. Yeah? Um, Tell me what what about it, then. You do not get red face ski goggle effect. Every Okay, when we were at Oculus Connect, you could tell who had done the Crescent Cove demo because they had a bright red circle around their face because of the ski goggle smush. Which you don't get with Project Morpheus. They crank a little bike helmet thing on you and it just sits on your face and it's just full of black magic and air. I don't know. Huh. It's not hot. It feels awesome. You know, I I tried it in a you know, very dim demo booth at GDC, but I still like that headset. It's so comfortable. Um, and then Crescent Cove was fun. Crescent but, Bay. Right? Or sorry, Crescent Bay. Yeah. <laughs> I never remember the name. It uh, was fun, but I... I feel like had been I had just been hyped on it and it did not live up to all the things that they said. Um, I could not feel a sense of depth. I, I felt like I was looking at a screen, um, but I think part of that is lack of eye tracking and, and fo- the change of focal depth, um, which I never expected out of another helmet. But but once I could like lay on the ground and and my favorite part of the demo was laying all the way on the ground and putting my head to the side and being able to look underneath all the models. Wow, you did that. Yeah, that was great. That <laughs> That's was cool. <laughs> I don't know if that violates the terms of use that you signed. That's uh, cool. No, actually, when I went in for my demo, the person giving the demo says, yeah, you can just move around, be careful if you go off the edge. Some people have been lying down. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow. They don't mind. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, here's where... I was blown away by Crescent Bay. Um, me, am I? And now I'm like starting to rethink. Like, it, was it in my head? No, it was. It was really that good. I, I don't know how. Uh, I, did we try the same thing? <laughs> you know, I I really liked Crescent Bay, and I thought that like it was great to be able to move around the demo. And I think that I maybe 
slightly more prone to, like, slightly by being, like, extremely more prone to motion sickness, apparently, than a lot of other people. I know, actually, when I went in, I asked if other people had gotten sick, and there were a few people who got motion sickness from it. So, like, it's still not at that point where no one is going to Mm. get a little bit sick from it. And I know that my experience, like, at the beginning was cool, and towards the end when I was starting to feel a little bit, like, eh, I was like, this is not living up to my expectation of not making me sick. Hmm. Um, but, like, I didn't, I definitely got depth out of it. Um, and maybe I mean, I definitely love the little are. city that you look at with, like, the little train. Yeah. Cool. I love that. That was great. Yeah. Um, I kind of, I, I like sticking my head into the 3D things <laughs> and just, like, ruining them. I was like, look at this great 3D visualization. I'll stick my head in the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, since there is 3D and I can move around in the 3D and there is a thing here, all I want to do is be in the middle of the thing. Yeah. I was like, there's like I think the beginning there's like an alien guy. I gave him a kiss. Yeah, I no, I just stuck my face into his face. I was like, <laughs> it's creepy. Creepy? Creepy? Oh, now I'm inside. Now this is really weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I liked that you could do that, which, like, just move around in the demo and, like, um not have that feeling that you get with a lot of Oculus demos right now where you are in a spot. Um, yeah. I do, I do you're wonder... You're less trapped. Yeah, you're less trapped. Mm-hmm. I do wonder, given that VR is not probably going to be something that you use in a room, it's probably going to be something you're sitting in a chair, especially since moving around, you like, you have to keep remembering to stick your hand out so you didn't run into the wall. Um, like, some of the things that are really cool about the Crescent Bay, I wonder how they'll end up actually getting used in an actual, like, non-demo, um, like, cool application, assuming that you're sitting in a chair, so your movement is going to end up being, like, not as much as you could move around in the demo room. Hmm. I was really excited, though, by the by not suddenly getting the out-of-camera range! Oh, my yeah. gosh, you freak out thing! Yeah. But the DKG yeah, was awesome. that 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 that's great, and the resolution was much better. Right. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to be blown away though. Yeah. By like what I see as well, yeah, that's what it should be. Like, <laughs> like, like not okay. I'm totally spoiled, right? Like we we work in the field and like I have access to all this tech and everything, but also you know like what Andrea was saying about the DK2, like I was so disappointed by the DK2 that when I saw the new demo, I was like. Well, yeah, clearly. Like, this doesn't seem, like, that much harder than the thing that you sold me, like, two weeks ago. What is it about the motion sickness problem that... How do, how does Oculus, how does the community, how does the industry go about tackling this? Is it is it solely on Oculus's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, right now responsibility Oculus, to deal with this. Right now, Oculus talks a lot about all these little details, like getting the frame rate up and getting you know less lag and all the milliseconds. Um, they're so focused on those little theoretical details when there are huge fixes that would be so much easier for them to take, like having adjustable IPD, which they don't have, and all this stuff mm-hmm. about resolution and getting correct warping doesn't matter if your eyes aren't the average distance apart that they're using. Yeah, and I. I talked a little bit about how the browser would know about what projection to use. Optimally, the headset could know what projection to use, and the browser could just be sending it, you know, the the same thing to all of the headsets, and the headset as, like, a last-pass thing that someone specially built a hardware chip to just do this one distortion, so therefore it does it way better than anyone could do on, like, some general-purpose thing could apply that projection to it. 
um, would be but another yeah, way like to the, do it. The motion sickness thing is really important. Are we going to solve it in one, in like, one giant leap? No, probably not. I mean, like, every... Every demo that I've tried has gotten closer and closer and closer to making me not sick. Have I ever not gotten sick? No, but I've gotten closer to not getting sick, which is, you know, all I really expect. What's your record? What's the longest you've spent? In Four here? minutes. Four minutes? Four minutes! Whoa! I've done nine hours. What about you? <laughs> oh. Um, nine hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't timing it. I think it took longer than four minutes to get sick in Crescent Bay. Okay. Um, I don't remember, I don't know how exactly how long their demo is, and I would say I probably started really feeling it about two-thirds of the way through. Yeah. Um, but that may be, um, uh, I'm also a special case, like, I have very poor proprioception, so, like, being able to, like, like, when you're sitting in a chair, being able to, like, tell how tall you are, things like that, I, once I put the headset on, I have, like, no ability to judge that stuff, so, like, I am definitely a hard use case for Oculus to be able to solve for, but, like, for, yeah, four minutes is, like, I want to desperately want to take the headset off at four minutes. Wow. Yeah. Do, do you want to? And it's also like it depends on what you're doing in the headset. Like mm-hmm. if you're just yeah. sitting there watching a video and you're not even trying to look around the video, you're just like, uh huh, uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Like, if something's if something really juddery, then after a few minutes, I'll like think I'm okay in the headset. But then once I take it off, I'll be like, oh, I see, I got a little sick from that. If it's a really smooth demo and not you know a Unity build juddery thing, I can last basically forever. Wow. Levi has great. Yeah. What's your record? What's how long as you've done? I've never particularly had anything I wanted to do in an Oculus for more than an hour. Mm. I mean, I have no life. I played Team Fortress Two for like nine hours straight, and it was, and I did it with a keyboard and mouse. Uh, and I, and the way I did it to like minimize the motion sickness, because the first thirty minutes were kind of like, oh, but then I was like, fight it, fight it. And I, and I, <laughs> You want to be here. I told myself, like, you want to be here. Yes, I want to be here. Was this just partially an experiment to see how long you could hang out in Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> After the podcast, I'll tell you more about this experiment. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I was like, I, ma- I made it so that I stood up on my feet. Uh, so, I have, like, I set up a, a you know, a, a, a make-your-own-do-it-yourself standing desk. And then I was standing there playing Team Fortress with my grandpa and my little cousin. And we were playing for nine hours. And it was amazing, <laughs> but I definitely I had to fight it. Like I was like, I, I it, after a while though, like I gotta say the the feeling that I still walk away from is like coming back. After those nine hours, my, like my mind was woozy. Like it was like you're human. It's Don't like when you that. get back on land after yeah. being on a boat for a while and you still have it. I still haven't yeah. tried. Like the first thing I ever heard of for virtual reality was Team Fortress Two. At yeah. first, I'm like, how is that gonna work? How are you gonna do anything? How are you gonna spy check? How are you gonna move? Like your head. How can like I don't know. I just I know that the moment I try TF2 in virtual reality, I'm gonna like fling my head around because I want to do whatever, do anything, right? I want to rock a gen. Like there's so many things that rely on really fast motions, and I know I'm gonna fling the headset right off of my face, or break it, or hurt myself, or or I'm gonna maybe be okay, but then my neck's gonna be so sore because I'm gonna be doing all this moving around mm. to try and look. Yeah, I had to adjust my style of play with Team Fortress 2. What I did is I was a, I was the heavy, and I would sort of stay... Oh, well, if you're the heavy, don't even move! <laughs> yeah, I just, so I definitely just stayed in the back, or I was the grenadier, and I would try to flank people, but, but my... My modus operandi was the heavy, and I would stay in the back, and I was and I was just you know taking people out from far, 
the I really did enjoy that though. like it was it was I, it was so addicting that I did it for nine hours straight just standing there and just you know with a giant machine gun quietly <laughs> <laughs> moving yeah. have a medic to watch your back so yeah. I, I couldn't do it I, didn't, I could not do that I was surprised how far into the leaderboards I was making it like I was in last place I was always in the middle like I was just your average team, team fortress shoot player like that was uh, reassuring to think that as a VR master race sort of guy, like I am doing okay against these PC peasants. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know that's a thing, right? Like VR master race. Like so, there's so the so there's a PC master race, right? So PC mm. PC players who you know who play video games and look down upon the peasants of consoles, right? <laughs> and but now there's a VR master race, and we are. In it, and you are in it without knowing. I don't knowing. think so. I don't I'm too competitive. Idea okay. at all. I'm sorry, but it's ha it's reality. <laughs> I think like first-person shooters are the worst idea for virtual reality. Yeah, like, awful. if you want to win at click on their heads, which is what all first-person shooters are, it's a game called Click on Their Heads, and you can click on their heads better when you're using a mouse that clicks, and you can go around as fast as possible. So, like, how would virtual reality make this? Better or easier? I don't know. That's I don't a good like question. It. That's a good question. How can it also, make it better? Also, like consoles are clearly just better to play on. No. No. <laughs> like, Hold on now. We're, this is about to get. Uh, weird. I have played hun literally hundreds of hours of Borderlands. Hundreds of hours sitting on the couch next to my husband with an Xbox controller in my hand, just like being happy. And you can't tell me that the experience of being happy is not the point of the game. I've destroyed my social life completely playing Battlefield. <laughs> so so I, I know where you're coming from. I like, it's you're not being happy. happy. But if you make you happy, that's the point. No, it's about yelling into the mic at people and winning <laughs> because your mouse skills are better than and theirs. And swatting so, them to I troll them. One game that I play and, <laughs> and um, I played it enough that uh, the creators of the game are always put me into their like betas and alphas <laughs> and, and invite me out and like for brunch and pay for it wow. here in town for GDC. <laughs> I think it's not a very popular game um, <laughs> but it is a puzzle game. Cool. So um, right, yeah. the problem with you multiplayer people though like Co-op, co-op is happy. Co-op is a lovely It's not about being happy. Life, if life are about being happy, we have very different lives. Multiplayer life is like about being happy. Just demolishing people. I think we can have our kick and eater though, because Battlefield is a play is a game where you co-op with your teams to demolish other teams. No. So the most satisfying feeling for me is being the Huey driver, the pilot of the helicopter, and I have my grandpa on one gun and my little cousin on the other gun, and we're just raining hell. And all I can all I can imagine in the back of my head is like that scene from Apocalypse Now and we're rolling in there with the Black Hawk <laughs> it's so so it's I, we can have our cake and eat it we can be co-op and we can demolish and take uh, people's dignity I have no interest dignity. in multiplayer uh, no, it's fun I, I'm super excited about co-op in my puzzle game because I think that would be great That'd be cool. the level <laughs> idea that I have um so secretly, I like this game because you can write levels for it, um, <laughs> and it's all about writing levels. Right. Well, um, that's a good point. So, so for it's um, all about creating stuff. Yeah. For yeah, it, and that's going to be great for virtual reality. So the question is, what games does virtual reality actually want to have? And people are focusing on all these first-person shooters. Yeah. But if you want to be competitive and you want to be win, uh, if you want to win and click on people's heads, 
then the computer is going to be easier for that. They're designed, they're not realistic input devices. They're efficient input devices. So the question is, what what is going to be actually better and easier in virtual reality, such as seeing three-dimensional things in a puzzle game, or in creating three-dimensional things where you want to have that sense of space, or in dealing with, uh, in, the, in the Crescent Bay demo, um, I thought like anything that was supposed to have a sense of a body and presence didn't work for me so well, mm -hmm. but the things where you are looking over the tiny city, there were two demos like that, I thought those worked really well, and I think mm -hmm. for puzzle games where you're not supposed to be a human being that like dinosaurs are attacking, but you're supposed to be looking at a 3D space in front of you, I think those are going to work much better. Yeah. I like the idea of creating things in VR, like the next, uh, like, I would, I would, I, I don't know how much money I give. I don't have much, but I give a lot of money, relatively speaking, to anyone who can create an engine that can help me create things in VR. Like, I want to create the next game for VR in VR. Like, I, I want to be able to have a user interface where I can pull stuff, or, or maybe it, maybe I can just have my hands on the side and I'm just like, you know, like, because you get tired of doing like this. Like, yeah, arms all over the place. All over the place. But if I can have my arms on the side and somehow, you know, be weird like that, like, you know, uh, control, manipulate the world and just, you know, with my gaze, using my gaze and like my hands, I feel like that would be really powerful if we can Me too. This. I don't want to be human. I don't want to edit spherical VR video on a screen. Mm -hmm. that, that's just ridiculous. The, the idea that I have to use a totally separate output device, this like rectangle flat thing, yeah. to make a thing that you're not even supposed to, to be watching on that is like just ridiculous to me. I want to work, I want to work in there, I want to, you know, I want to experience um, forums and, and the web. I want it all to be in the headset so that I'm not like taking it off and doing something on the screen and then putting it back on and then taking it off and doing something on the screen. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, an integrated environment for creation and, and editing and sharing and all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's really any demos where there's anything with a lot of text or something that you have to use. And I think part of it is the resolution isn't good yeah. for text. Because mm -hmm. a one letter is like two pixels and you just can't, yeah, your brain like, just doesn't put the thing together very well. Um, yeah. So like, that would be a nice thing to be able to do, and I think, but I think right now our resolution is not going to let you do it, and so that's part of the reason why no one is doing that. And when we talk about web VR, um, there's a mailing list and we have discussions, and someone was like, how would links work, and how would all these things work? I was like, I don't think that you can put a website into web VR right now and have it be something that someone's actually going to want. Like, you can't take a website that was designed for two-dimensional rectangle viewing and put it into a headset in any way that's actually going to be a good experience. Right, because right the thing now. that people are doing right now is like, they take pictures, they bend them slightly so that they're slightly concave, they put like a little label under that, and then you can like look around at like a basically what is just like a, a bunch of, yeah, in front of you. That and is then, slightly concave. Yeah, like, and then like a, not, you know, a nice idea for both your, you could have all your rectangles all the way around for all your different tabs so you can look at all of them just by moving your head and like can't read them because you don't have that kind of resolution. Yeah. Which you zoomed in really far and it'd be a frustrating Ain't experience it. like looking at <laughs> looking at a website that wasn't intended for phone on your phone. And I think with like VR you're going to see the same thing. Like when you go to a website, people will have a VR version of their website that was intended for use in VR where like the icons are done and like the buttons that you might want to click the information is presented the way that you'd be reasonable for viewing it in VR. So instead of trying to have the same website and you go and you look at your regular website 
on your phone that doesn't look good because the font's too small or in order, like, your phone will auto-zoom it, but now it's, like, huge and there's not, like, it doesn't look good. People will, and if you go to other websites, they will have developed for a phone-sized screen and they'll have something that looks really good on a phone because they've specially separately developed for, like, mobile web. And I think that um, a lot of people who, some people who are thinking about VR web are like, oh, well, how will we show the current internet on VR in a good way, and I think the answer is it's going to be like looking at the current internet on your phone. Uh, the things that look good are going to be the things that were specifically designed for VR web, and there's nothing you can do to something that was designed for a rectangle, really rectangle, and like lots of text that you can't read that well that's going to look great in your headset. Although I like it's just going to show a, show a rectangle on your screen that is that website, yeah. and... Yeah. That's just, it's not going to be the kind of experience that you really want. I really want, like, the first, uh, like, Wikipedia page for VR to just be, like, some historical event. Like, pick one at random, I don't know, the Titanic or something. And there is, a like, an actual 3D scene that they put Ooh. you into in the site. And then, like, you wander around this giant 3D scene and there's, like, tooltips that you can read. And, mm. and you can, like, like, something like that I think would be an interesting use for, like, uh, an encyclopedia. Or, you know, if there's... A, a page on protein folding, you would be able to actually go inside and, like, explore the explanation of a folded protein molecule. Like, that reminds me of Heim's uh, Wikipedia class on, like, sticking interactive things into Wikipedia. He taught some class where his students yeah. all did that. Hmm. Uh, I'm interested... Well, what that, that sort of... Springs to mind is the idea of using um, a a search engine in VR. Like, how will that work? Are we still going to be be using keyboard and mouse to input it? Like, I think mm -hmm. it's, it's like it's going to be voice, voice right? Yeah, yeah. The same way that like I can be like voicing at my phone, or you can voice at your Google Glass or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I think there will be a lot more voice input. Right. I agree there will be more. I don't think hands are going to become obsolete. Yeah. Hands will never become obsolete. Mm -hmm. and then, they're so nice. And they're, they're really good at doing stuff. Like, they're designed for that. They're not actually really good at typing. No. <laughs> I do think we need... Like, I'm interested in new abstract input devices. Yeah. I don't think all of this... I mean, the hand tracking presence kind of, I am a human being, now I am a human being in VR. That's all yeah, very interesting. But what I think is really going to end up being more useful for people in most real-life situations, maybe not entertainment situations, but real life, is the abstract input devices like a keyboard and mouse, um, where it's augmenting what you can do, and you're not thinking about where your hands are. All you're thinking about is what you want to be doing. You're not conscious of where your fingers are hitting which keys. You're only conscious of the words you're trying to type. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of input controls we need, mm -hmm. not a kind of input control that simulates handwriting by moving your hand and yeah. handwriting. Oh. A great example is like a keyboard. <laughs> if you were going to design a keyboard today, you would not go to a VC funder and be like, okay, I am going to make this thing that is a button for every single thing that you would want to do on the computer. There's just one button for every single thing. Like, no one would ever design that now. You'd be like, well, that's that's clearly ridiculous. Like, 
I don't mean you don't have a button for every single thing that you can do on screen. Like there, are, you know, we use things like hotkeys. Like we've learned to implement keyboards in a way that are effective, mm-hmm. but they're not the best input device. Like outdated, I think. I, what? It, but speaking of input device, and perhaps we can talk a little bit, a little bit, a little bit about this a bit more. Um, what do you guys think is the ideal input device for VR? Like. I feel like that is a question that a lot of companies are struggling with. I think Morpheus has nailed down a very interesting and very, uh, I think it's a, a very potentially really good solution with their move controllers. But I don't know if that is the ideal solution. What do you guys think? Well, that's trying to solve a different problem. That's trying to solve the problem of, of realistic uh, input rather than abstract input. Um, and personally, I'm more interested in the questions of abstract input. I think, in the end, hand tracking. It's going to be hand tracking for realistic input. It's Can not you good. give me the difference between realistic and abstract, please? If you're um, typing onto a keyboard, that would be more abstract, right? And then if you're mm-hmm. like having like being able to like see where your hands are in space and like having that be important, or like uh, uh, that would be more realistic. Oh, I see. Thank right? you. Like, so, like, me picking up the cup with my hand is real. Me saying to the computer, pick up the cup, that's an abstract. Uh, or using yeah. a mouse to pick up a cup. And in your head, when you're playing a video game and you're using a mouse to pick something up with your hand, like, you're not thinking about the mouse anymore because the mouse has become a tool. And a tool is a thing that you use without thinking about it. You don't look to reach for it. You just use it. Uh, and then you do what you want to do. So... Um, those kind of abstract input devices that completely disappear from our consciousness uh-huh. that don't represent where our hands actually are in our mental model of what we're doing, that's, that's what I'm interested in. What is it? What do you think it'll look like 10 years from now, uh, that, that abstract input device that we all need to be able to interact with the metaverse? Um, I like to imagine some sort of thing that you probably use your hands with. Maybe um, you're resting comfortably and your hands are kind of on your lap, and then you can move your hands kind of in, in your normal range of motion when you're talking and you move your hand, but maybe there's some sort of glove or thing your hands are holding onto that applies a little bit of resistance, lets you rest your arms a little uh, so that you're not holding them up, um, but just so you can comfortably kind of be moving your hands in symbolic ways. Um, without it requiring very much effort or the kind of small motions that we know cause all sorts of problems in your wrists and your arms. Mm. Um, And if we can have those small motions and a a range of meaningful motions and then interpret those to mean something, uh, that's that's what I think it's A great example of something that you're already used to doing is pitch and zoom, right? Right. You would, before there were touch screens, you would have never thought to like put your hand on your computer screen and use your fingers to, to manipulate an image on screen, but now that there are touch screens, you're very used to doing that. And so we'll have a whole other set of, you know, quote unquote, abstracted systems of, of symbolic movement that we'll do. Exactly that. I, I, I have a crazy idea, um, but I think I got it. I found it. I, I think we, I, I, I just now, between the <laughs> things that you just said to me, uh, and a split second in my mind, I came up with the ideal input device. 10 years from now. It's a little bit crazy, so bear with me. Pants. Pants that you just mm-hmm. rub. <laughs> you rub in different directions and like, and then, you know, you control and, you know, we can add haptic feedback to them too. So if you, you know, depending on what kind of day you're with, what kind of mood am I in? All right, I'm in a, I'm in a running mood. So perhaps you can get haptic feedback on your ankles that'll like, you know, 
maybe electrocute them to make you <laughs> up and running. Or if you're feeling uh, inappropriately horny, you could have those pants take that role as well. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's just so many solutions. I think pants, um, but uh, but pants there's are the pants of the future. Pants are the haptic or the input uh, device of the future. Uh, what, but what about you guys? Like, so controllers. No controllers. No. No controllers. I don't even think gloves are really no, that necessary. No gloves either. Like, it depends on how far you're asking me out, but like, there's, there's no reason why you couldn't just have something inside of your hand. Like, like there's like, uh, like yeah. having. Like, I am a huge fan of the injecting nanobots into my bloodstream theory. Oh. As soon as that becomes available, I will be your first test subject. Like, that is my ideal. Like, there should be no external. Uh, technology. There's no need for that. I have a nervous system that you can directly get information to and out of. So that's my ideal. Will it happen in the next ten years? No. Yeah, I disagree. I think having some resistance is is good. When your hands are just floating in the air, I think that just takes a lot more energy. Yeah. I think I think a lot of the things where you have like your hands in front of your face, like there's um, this one game that was really popular for a while that a lot of my friends played, where it was super popular, and it drove me nuts, because I'd watch people play it, and the character goes around the whole time, you're just, like, first uh, person, and your <laughs> hands are in front of your, like, you're, like, hands up like this, so all you can see the whole time in the, is in the screen is the hands, because you're walking around, and as far as I can tell, you're walking around with your hands in your face, yeah. and I'm like, this is the most unrealistic thing, Not like, if moment. I walked around like this all the time, and I think a lot of I the mean, hands... I mean, Dead Space looks like that, Bioshock yeah, looks a like lot that, of yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't play that many of them, but I'm like, that is terrible. That is not how it works. Like, and I feel like a lot of these things with hand input are kind of like that, except they expect me to actually do it with my hands. Mm. Right, and, and part of that's an artifact of framing, where when you have a, a oh, rectangular sure. game, you need your hands in the frames, you can see what weapon you're holding or what you're doing. And we're not going to need to have our hands held up in our faces when right, actually you can look down. down. Yeah. Um, but people are inheriting all those old things into VR where you don't need them anymore. There's no reason to have hands in front of your face. We need to, yeah, there's definitely a lot of rethinking that needs to get done with in terms of, just on every aspect of VR, filmmaking, gaming, everything, I think. Although, I, I, okay, I changed my mind. I really want gloves. Yeah. <laughs> I really want just, like, really awesome elbow-length, like, just, like, awesome fashion gloves that are also, like, my inputs. And, and I, I want, like, buttons on so it, awesome. too, where you can, like, click the buttons, like, Power Why Rangers buttons? I, I'm retro like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have all touch input. Yeah. They don't need buttons. There are great just... things about buttons. They are something you can actually press. You don't have to take your finger off of them, and they give you haptic feedback. Amazon <laughs> <laughs> recently reinvented the button um, for, their for their new Kindle, yeah. except that it's called... <laughs> amazing touch press sensor with haptic feedback. <laughs> and I was like reading this whole thing and I was like, is it a joke? Because you just described a button. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I just like the fashion marketing. They do I some things, I swear. Yeah, and I, I want a little bit of exoskeletal. So I, I agree with like the... I was thinking more like a mat that you would put on your lap and then would like rather than pants, but integrating it into pants would be great. Um, if, you know, just put your hands on and move your hands. All right, how do you... This is this is the problem with their theory. How do you use your pants when you're in VR? You work in VR. You live in VR. You don't need to wear pants ever again. <laughs> that is true. Pants are obsolete, sir. Mm -hmm. They're underwear. Is <laughs> at some point in your life you're gonna have to wear underwear. If you, 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 you want to use your yes, VR. Yes, yes. 
Um, man, that's a good one. You got me there. You got me there with the pants. Because I, I don't want to be wearing pants inside my house while inside the metaverse. That's, that's ridiculous. Well, this is our job. We're a research group seeing the future. <laughs> yes, yes. You're doing the Lord's work here. That definitely. Um, and if they were elbow links, too. Sorry, no, I was just kind of thinking about this. Yeah. Like, the problem with keyboards is the, you, the, the position of your arms to each other and the position of your wrists doesn't change enough. So if you were, were, actually were wearing gloves, things like externally rotating your arms and internally rotating your arms could be signals. And then you could do things like like brush against the, the side of your arm. And, and we, could, um, we could manufacture like a set of things that would actually re- reverse all of our years and years of carpal tunnels. <laughs> yeah, like, everything that you do in VR is just like an exercise for your hands so that you don't get carpal tunnel. Yeah, speaking of like some of the things that technology has done to us, carpal tunnel is one of them, right? But, but I was just listening to an NPR story about how kids these days Younger kids, they're all, all like, man, I, I feel old saying that. But the younger kids now, they're interacting with each other through text messaging so much that, you know, you had these researchers finding out that, well, I think this is having a negative impact on their social ability, their social skills, right? Here's where VR comes in because this is all about VR. Uh, we can start getting eye tracking inside these headsets and we can actually, instead of them texting with each other, they can be in the metaverse with each other and they can be interacting with like that fox face kid that he decided to have a fox face avatar and the um, Iron Man avatar. I, I, I wonder if we could use technology to help alleviate the problems that technology is already causing or is that going to exacerbate the problems we already have? Yes, I think that it will, it, it can fix things. But it, that doesn't mean that it won't have its own problems. Mm. Like, sure, you're going to fix the problem of texting if kids are no longer using texting to communicate. And, like, sure, but it's going to cause some other, like, sim addiction or it's going to cause, like, you know, people are going to worry about kids being unable to tell the difference between uh, reality and fantasy. And there's, you know, there's been studies recently about, like, if a kid cannot tell the difference between fantasy and reality, that has all kinds of implications for later on in their life and, you know, manipulability by people with all kinds of schemes and things. Like, there there will be other problems. No. There's never going to not be problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, that reminds me of being eight years old and playing around with my imaginary friends. Um, and I wonder if, like, you know, how will kids of the future, like, will that... Well, having these things, these worlds surrounding them, like, will they have the imagination that we sort of grew up with, you know, because we, I, where I, for example, grew up in a world without the internet for a long time. Like, I was, uh, a few years of my life I spent living in Nicaragua, and, dude, there was no internet. <laughs> we had cable, uh, and it was okay. Uh, like a new engine four, but it wasn't, it wasn't, okay. <laughs> it was like, it was okay. It was okay. Um, but, I, but but I feel like the world that we live in now with the internet is so different from the one we've left behind. And I think we're about to take a even bigger leap with yeah. VR in the mm-hmm. metaverse. Do, do you see how different will kids be, do you think? And, you know, are you guys working on emojis for VR so that they can communicate with them as well? <laughs> they, don't, they don't need that. They'll have, they don't, they'll need, they'll have something else. I think that... Every generation with different like technology is like, oh, the kids will be so different and they'll grow up and they'll be ruining of everything. I think that like worrying about that too much is silly, but I also think it's the case that um, sometimes like 
kids tend to be much more like if you give a kid a cardboard like if you give a kid a present and they open it and there's a giant cardboard box and a toy a lot of kids will end up playing with that cardboard box yeah. like it doesn't matter that there's something with a lot more stimulation that like is giving everything for them i think that people actually like using creativity so if everything is already there and there's nothing you can do then that's not interesting anymore yeah. right like but just, using ar applications to like create what you actually think your actual imaginary friend looks like and then like put them on the couch next to you yeah, and talk like to them that's like that's cool right like, that's like cool. that would be amazing but you the, but, but that's, that's not still something that someone fetched you like, that's, that's not, human made yeah i think it's the same way like when i was telling you earlier it's like all about creating stuff yeah um and i think that the kids of the future may have better ability to create stuff like they'll be able to actually make their imaginary friends but they're not going to stop having imaginary friends just because they can like go into a virtual world and see something that's pre-made for them mm-hmm. um that's like a an experience and because that just gets boring really easily i think yeah, I think it can run out of juice. Yeah, yeah I think well, that runs out of juice. I think it becomes interesting when there's something you can really do and you can really interact. Right. And I think that kids will be fine. <laughs> and, Probably. you know, you're going to give your kid the new VR game and they're going to play with the box. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, it depends on the game. I mean, they probably won't actually have a box. But it'll be well the Amazon drone box that it came in. Yeah. Well, kids have all these access to you know fancy technology, and right now kids love playing Minecraft because yeah. if you're a kid, you want to have control over your life and the world you live in. And in True. real life, if you're a kid, you don't. You don't have any control over your life. So that's very compelling, and it's gonna I think even be more compelling in VR when you have this whole world that's all yours to play with. Mm-hmm. And I do worry about psychological aspects of what is it gonna be like when you grow up in this virtual world that seems as real as reality. How are we going to treat each other as human beings in real life when we have alternate versions that look just as real that... Yeah, you can just shoot them up. <laughs> and that's yeah, okay, that's apparently. Um. I, my hope is education will really take off here and really step up because I think there's so much potential to use VR to educate ourselves and educate the young and even... In more the in more weird of senses, like I feel like you know, sex sex education should be taught in VR. Like you know, in high school, I would have had I been 17 in high school and put on HMD, and then they would have showed me. They showed me. They showed us videos of women giving birth, and I want. I I know this sounds weird, but I want to see what it be look what it would look like to like have that perspective of like, oh my God, there's a human being coming out of me. Like that'd be really interesting. Or being a woman and seeing what it's like to like, or what it, what she sees when she is in intercourse with a man, like that is, I and give that to kids and then see what happens. If know. you went to sex ed at my school, it would have been like, and now we will virtually give you herpes. Now look what it looks like when you have this horrible infection in your eye. Because if you ever have sex, you will Did get you herpes in your eye. Did you not have sex ed until you were seventeen? Yeah. That's just, how many of the kids in your school have already had sex by the time you guys did sex ed? Like, that's just bad planning. It was, uh, thankfully my dad, uh, the only, the only thing he ever taught me, uh, sorry dad, it was wear a condom. Like, since, like, all the time. You're like, what's a condom, Dude, I'm nine years old. I don't know what that is. Uh, But, yeah, like, for a while. You can try that out in VR. Learn how they work. (laughs) 
I mean, VR. I think it might be worth trying that out actually physically with a physical thing. They're not that expensive and <laughs> inspect your VR condoms. I like your logic. I see where you're coming from. I, with I that. like this idea. I think the one thing that you do have to consider about this is like if you put people in that situation, like that's there's great potential for empathy, but there's also great potential for like if you're a gay kid and like you only ever show them you know, heteronormative sex in a sex ed VR thing, like, they're gonna get fucked up in the head, like... That's why you do both, all of it, yeah, because like, sexuality so is a spectrum, right? Just, so you but, do but that's the thing, is, like, the... <laughs> we've been thinking a lot about bias lately. The... the We can do awesome things with VR, but just, like, now in sex ed, we have to think about, like, what you're putting into it. And, and because VR is really, really powerful, we have to take even more precautions and think more about, like what people you like what are people seeing in there what are people getting out of it and 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 how are you framing it are you framing it to be about empathy are you framing it to be about curiosity or like just all those things i think are important to think about i agree just like reality virtual reality is virtual reality you can do great things or terrible things just as you do in reality and you could have great education or you could have terrible education And some of these things can be really powerful, and you can bet there's a lot of people who are going to put out a lot of terrible, harmful experiences. Oh, just yeah, I'm sure the, like, religious museum that, that, like, puts cavemen and dinosaurs in the same exhibit and tells people that that science is going to just, like, make a realistic VR thing and be like, look, like, see? And it'll be beautiful and compelling. Yeah. And, mm. But I'm, I'm, sure I'm that even that worse than that. No you know, there's a lot of people who are going to make a lot of money off of well, not just first-person shooters that make you actually feel like you're in a war instead of playing click on their head, but <laughs> just that's, that's, there's a big better there. Christian like mass ministry will be when it can actually be Christian one-to-one ministry. Ah, uh-huh. mm. yeah, killer app right there. I that, I think that well that, that's I think that's the beauty of the platform slash world that we are unlocking. It's so much about being able to utilize it and making it your own. And mm-hmm. us being able to live in this pluralistic society, you know, for as much as I disagree with, like, you know, different ideas or ideals or religion, I'm, you know, they're free to do and create whatever they want. I, and I, and I, you would hope that through the free market or just the availability of so much information, people will just be able to make better choices. I think, I hope the metaverse turns out to be somewhere where you're not sort of in a bubble where like it's you know how um you know i hope the metaverse is in a place where like you have blinders on and like you have because because you're being targeted so much through ads you you'll have these blinders and you won't be able to like discover new things because you have all this like uh information about you that they'll just like okay and he likes motocross we're just gonna keep throwing motocross stuff at him you know well yeah i don't know blinders there are also advantages to blinders which we've talked about before, which is like, if there's a person who is, for example, um, commits a hate crime, mm-hmm. um, should you be able to put an AR helmet on this person and make everyone look like they're in group? Like, make everyone look in the real world like a person that they would like and would not commit a hate crime against like should you do that wow that's so that that is you're opening up a can of worms with that question that's a very interesting question like that's blinders but is that the right thing to do or not i have no idea yeah (laughs) 
because if I'm a if I like if I'm a furry, not that I am, but if I want to be surrounded by furries, you know, is that so like, do you have the right to make everyone look that way? That's a good. Do that's you a, have I mean, the right to make me look really hot? That's in interesting. AR? Like what, those, are the, those are my favorite questions. Is like, what do you yeah, have to do to other people man, if you're, you're the only one seeing it? You're hurting my head with those questions. I think that's a good. That's those are good questions. I think definitely if, 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 if the more uncomfortable I get, I think the better. <laughs> I think the better discussion we'll get out of this, and definitely I'm going to like flop some of my, my answers. And we have this discussion a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I, I want to figure out a way so that we can have our cake and eat it. You know, like maybe I am. Maybe I do have that right to like see everybody as a furry, but I don't know if. But maybe I have a firewall where like I'm sorry this is this this gets awkward, but like maybe I have a firewall where you don't know that I'm actually licking you hot, right? Like in a hot like, like. Uh, maybe, but I don't people, know. But people, you know, we've proven basically that like people treat people who are hot are better. So maybe we should just make everyone look as hot as humanly possible. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that you'll also find that, like, if you have the opposite thing where, like, only you get to have control over what you look and no one else, like, unless they, like, hack their system, mm-hmm. can make you look any way different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's some, like, multiplayer video games out there where you can, like, choose your avatar and everyone sees that avatar and you really need to hack it. And so you can sort of think of it more like that. Mm-hmm. Um as sort of something more that we have right now. Um, like, if everyone had control over their own system, I sort of suspect that everyone would still look really hot, because <laughs> I think everyone would create, you know, it may or may not look like themselves, but it, if it did look like themselves, it would be the idealistic version of themselves, where, you know, where, like, you know, I've always wished that I had, was, like, you know, slightly taller, so you make yourself slightly taller, or, you know, slightly thinner, and so everyone's going to be attractive if you have control over your own avatar. Yeah. So it's not just, like, a matter of, like, people treat people better because they're more attractive. I think you won't see that many avatars. Like, no one's going to create the ugly avatar. But maybe they will. Maybe that'll become, like, the new Ska yeah. or something. Well, I mean, <laughs> or God, like, like, put your yeah. hipster, like, I'm going to make the ugliest avatar possible. Like yeah. a hipster. But, I was yeah, ugly before and, was that, cool. and, then, and then there'll be, like, whole things, like, you shouldn't treat someone worse just because they chose to make, uh, they're in this group where they have avatars like that. But I think that most people are going to fall into the camp of making avatars or, like, versions of themselves that are attractive people. In the same way that, like, um, the other day, uh, the Vi and Emily went to Sephora and were just <laughs> totally ridiculous with the makeup. Like, Vi put polka dot spots on her lips. And then I drew a happy face yeah. on my face so that you could see how happy I was. <laughs> and, and my comment is, like, I feel like I'm in a movie of the future because in future movies, to show, like, how different things are, they'll, like, have, like, really crazy st- fashions. But the fact is those fashions would never become a fashion because we actually had somewhat hardwired what beauty is. And Unless we have AR. Yeah. <laughs> then I'm going to have just like neon pipes like, sticking out of my head at every angle. Yeah, but, like, like, but pe- people have hardwired like already like through thousands of years of evolution mm-hmm. of like what characteristics are attractive. Yeah. And something that like really violates that is never really going to take off. Like an interesting question is why are high heels really popular when they're like clearly really bad for your feet? 
and um, but they've like yeah, but they like been popular for like a really long time, and most fashions go in and out of style, and this mm. is one that has been in style for hundreds of years. Um, and they've actually done studies that I find kind of interesting, where like you can put like dots on someone that like light up to show like gait, but like, as they move, um, but you can't like really see anything else. And they've done videos, and they've had the same woman walking with and without heels, and then they show it to men and see how they respond. Um, and I think, like, in a decent number of the scenarios, like, a woman walking with heels is perceived as being more attractive. And I think the theoretical reason is that it causes you to make smaller steps. It's been a while since I read the studies, so it's, I don't remember exactly what it was. But I like, read red dresses also, uh, yeah. like, make men go... Like, yeah. yeah. So, 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 like, so, like, the things that become in fashion and stay in fashion mm-hmm. are things that, like, are really, I think, connecting to something that's uh, more visceral or like something that's like really inherent to how we think of fashion. And so, I think that, and that when you like look at what people's avatars are going to be like, they're going to look like attractive people. And like, exactly what attractive is does change a little bit, but there are a lot of like general things that are the same no matter where you go. Or like, like more you know, symmetric features is generally more attractive. Yeah. But Being like, like, like ridiculously thin is not attractive in general necessarily, but it sort of is in our culture right now, and that's sort of an example of like a cultural thing. Yeah. Hmm. But um, certainly not. Like, there's a range of, like, normal that would be, like, generally attractive and certainly being more symmetric and, like, you know, rosier cheeks. I mean, people used to put belladonna in their eyes, like, nightshade, deadly nightshade, in your eyes. And it was called belladonna because it made your pupils dilate. And dilated pupils, um, people perceive that as being more attractive because pupils, pupils dilate when they're aroused. So if you're talking to someone and their pupils are dilated, it probably means they're interested wow. in you. Even though it messes with your eyes and you're putting a deadly poison into your eyes, that was a thing for a fairly long time. Yeah. And that's why it's called Belladonna, is because it makes a girl like What a huge polarity between what makes you, quote-unquote, look good and what makes you feel good. Like, you, you have these things that, like, I know wheels don't feel good after a while. Like, I know, like, I, I seen my girlfriend and she's like... No, they feel awesome. Yeah. It's fun, it's it's fun to have a skill. And yeah. it's fun to do something you're skilled at. So I happen to be very skilled at walking in heels. And it's just fun to do something that you're very good at and do it well. I have an evolutionary theory <laughs> as to why heels are still around. And I think you're being sarcastic on that, were you? Or I no, know, not at all. No, no, no. <laughs> that was definitely serious. It was very serious. It was still funny. I danced for a long time. So coming from ballet, where you're on your toes most of the time, heels are nothing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's um. So so the yes. So the evolutionary theory. And sorry, I I I don't know if it's funny because I, I I'm slow to catch on to the sarcasm. <laughs> I really don't know if I'm. It's like, not sarcasm. Okay. Okay. Absolutely yeah. true. Oh, okay. okay. This is. This is True. Okay. Um, wearing stuff is still not good for your feet, <laughs> but it's possible to feel accomplished in any random skill. Okay. Um, it's, it's fun. Like, there's a lot of weird skills out there that people do because they enjoy being good at them. Yeah. And, like, if you're good Sword at swallowing, swallowing it's also not great for you. Sword swallowing, yeah. So that's breathing that. fire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I have an evolutionary theory as to why heels are so popular, and I think it goes back to the dawn of man's evolution. Um, I th- so there's so I was, don't worry this is backed by science. Um, 
so there was this. You ever watch Discovery News? So there was so Discovery News. So Discovery has a channel called Discovery News on YouTube, and they and I think they uh, they did a segment on why women or why big butts are so attractive. Uh, and I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. And I, what they found was men are hardwired to look for features in a potential partner that show uh, fertility, right? So, so baboons, like when they're in, obviously we're cousins of baboons, right? So when they're esterous, you know, their their butts get swollen, right? Big red swollen butts. And so <laughs> that's just a cool thing to say. <laughs> but I didn't have to say that. But so heels, though, like why I think they're popular is because I think they like they lift up your leg, they make them longer, and I think they plump up your butt. And I think let's not lie to each other here, ladies. This is why men are they find them attractive because they're like, wow, that is a. a the a, only problem yeah. with your theory mm-hmm. is that heels were originally designed to be worn by men. Really? Yeah, yeah they were. I, knew uh, I, good I, I think I, I think that. that as a fashion trend for men, they went away, and as a fashion trend for women, they stayed. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think the interesting thing about Mostly heels is not really is not that like they are a weird fashion trend, but that they are a weird fashion trend that like is not good for your feet, and yet has somehow still managed to stay popular for hundreds of years. Yeah. And they stayed popular for women, and and like very quickly died out for men. I'm gonna bring back so, the heels. I think yeah, that I'm gonna bring, sure. bring them back. A lot of men do wear heels, actually, they're just like secretly. Yeah. Um, or, you know, they're inside of their shoe instead of outside. Things. They're like secret heels, because being tall is an advantage. Yeah, and as a too. tall person, I'm very grateful that I have this advantage, because <laughs> it is actually, it is an advantage, and, yeah. and I am glad of it. Um, so wearing heels has that advantage. Like, businesswomen wear heels because they know, not only because, but you know, you know you do better in business if you're taller. Like, that is a clear advantage. And it is true that, you know, when your muscles are more engaged, just in general, it doesn't have to be any particular muscle, although, you know, there's lots of muscle that people find attractive, but when your muscles are engaged, you look like a more active, alive human being. Mm. And that is also attractive to other human beings who like live humans. (laughs) (laughs) You know, maybe not for everyone. So, so conclusion, men, we need to bring back the heels, um, and because we're uh, we're gonna lose out. There, you guys have advantage here that we need to take advantage of. Uh, You're uh, already taller on average, <laughs> so you don't really need that one so much. <laughs> just imagine men walking around in heels and like just ah, oh, that was the disasters. I mean, this is San Francisco. There's plenty of guys. Yeah, there's a lot of guys who do wear heels. <laughs> like. All the men in that street right now, imagine them walking around in heels. Like, that they would be... They practice. Yeah? They would need practice. They would walk in heels skill. for a while. Yeah, like oh. I said, walking in heels is a skill. Yeah. It is um, a skill you can practice. I don't know how don't we know. ended I've up in this neck of the woods. I've found the walking in heels that bad. It's just that, like, like any shoe, not just heels, can be super uncomfortable. Mm. Uh-huh. Right. Like, look at all of... Well, you're... Right, for people not seeing what's going on right now, three of us are wearing socks. Socks. <laughs> and not shoes. Yeah. And I think that heels, because they're often designed to look nice, are designed at the expense of comfort, so you you don't want to wear them. And they're also, (laughs) I mean, it's also just the position of your feet is not that good, and you can get foot problems as a result. But going back to VR, where you won't get foot problems from your virtual heels, in in VR, 
Um, right. I, this wasn't just a complete. But do you think that there'll actually be like accessories? Like sometimes, like now, mm-hmm. you see people like go buy like physical accessories for their computer games. Where right. you're, so like, this is why TF2 thing. comes So I might actually yeah, go to the store and I want like I want my yeah. avatar to have the best red dress. I want that red dress, and I'll mm-hmm. buy the red dress at the store. And then when I put it on, my avatar can wear the same red dress. Like. Yeah. Uh, so here's what you were, you were sad for. Let's 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 get rid of that barrier between like the real world and the virtual world. I want to go shopping in the regular store for clothes, and then I want to wear those clothes in VR. My VR should know about the clothes that I bought. My clothes should be talking to it and being like, "Hey, she bought this amazing dress." Yeah. Um, yeah. Someone's gonna implement that. Some giant clothing designer who mm-hmm. is gonna make a make a deal with whatever the app happens to be that ends up being our, our chat room. But for, for accessories and for fashion in general, right, one thing is wanting to look nice, but another is prestige. So right now, um, in, for example, TF2, which we were talking about before, right, the hats you would wear in TF2 are not the hats you'd wear in real life, but people wear them because in addition to, you know, looking how they want to look, there's a lot of prestige associated with it because people know how much those cost or how difficult they are to get. And we have this in fashion in real life, too. But, you know, it's a different market and it's coming from a different place. So it's it had that opportunity to be different and change. Um, and in VR, uh, we're talking about these ideas of being able to do whatever we want. Um, and that's not necessarily going to be the case. Someone is going to be making these virtual worlds that people end up using. Someone's going to be in control of them. And this is one of the reasons we started this group in the first place, is to try and keep things as open as possible. But if you imagine a virtual world that isn't open, where you don't get to choose what you look like, but have to pay for what you look like, yeah. uh, or get items, or however it is that it happens... That would be lame. That It would be lame, but... It's likely that there will be worlds like that, and fashion is gonna depend on that. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be the more expensive items, the flashier items, the prestige items yeah. might be different than in real life, where certain shoes have prestige. Yeah, I, there are just so many ways to monetize on this technology, and I, I, yeah, and that is being one of them, right? And so many industries that could, you know, that wouldn't you wouldn't think that they would fit in into VR, but they do. We're going to start bringing things to a close, uh, but I just want to ask one last question uh, to you guys. Uh, Ten years from now, what will the world look like um, with, you know, as, as things are progressing? Like, what do you guys think the world would look like with VR? Will it be just a subsection of a subsection of people just really enthusiastic about it and just having podcasts and, and, and just, you know, you know just having a, a small community or will it permeate all of human life on planet Earth? Like In what, 10 years? In 10 years. No way. What do you think? Um, okay, well, there has there are water called Ethiopia that don't have water. Right. Like, if you expect 10 years from now for everyone on the planet to be doing VR, that's just ludicrous. 4.5 billion people then. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Like, let's get everyone with, like, clean water and vaccinations and, like, healthcare and everything. Like, let's work on that. And then also, like, let's also make VR. They're not, you know, we don't have to do one or the other. But True. You can but have a cake and eat it. Yes. I think that if you're talking about permeating rich, privileged Western culture, or maybe, maybe Western is unfair, rich, privileged culture among humans, yes. I think that in 10 years, you know, everyone's going to have at least, like, a high-end version of Gear VR. Um, but the, you know, the problem with that is that, like, 
the number of people who play video games in the world is not the number of people in the world. Um, and and money and privilege are like really, really hard problems to solve. And this is just another industry that's going to be affected by those issues. Um, right, but it would it won't just be gaming. Obviously, VR is going to be a more more than just gaming. So how would this world look any different from today? Had if VR becomes mainstream, like. What do you think? You will. There will no longer be screens. There will no longer be things like standing desks or sitting desks or laptops or cell phones. Maybe or, even offices. Yeah, like the the idea of like a space where you work will probably still exist because, especially like our office is not a place where the computers live. Our office is a place where like people, people. who are working on the same things that you're working on are in the same place as you and you collaborate with them. Um, so there will be a lot less. Um, I feel like I'm pointing around the room looking at Jeff's face. But like, there's, there will be a lot less nece- necessity for like the accoutrement of today's computer world. It will be a lot more integrated into everyday life and a lot more mobile and a lot more um, being able to use 3D information and 3D space uh, it, as a way to think. Right. Uh, and, and letting people create in that space and, and share information in that space without having to, you know, like, let's all gather around this little screen. Mm. What do you think? Um, 10 years is a pretty long time. I mean, obviously, like Emily said, it's not going to be everywhere. I, I mean, I think that success for VR would be having distribution similar to maybe what smartphones have today. And I think that it's actually fairly close to that because right now, like, Gear VR and, like, Google Cardboard are really trying to bring the VR experience to people who have a phone. And so, like, if we're that close to it right now, then definitely in 10 years everyone is going to have something like that, even if they're not a big gamer or something that, oh, you're stuck on a long bus ride, you can, like, just go into VR and be somewhere else. Um and maybe try and get work done or, you know, watch a video that you're streaming. Um, oh, that's totally dependent on the, the increase in bandwidth on, on mobile networks, too. Yeah, maybe not in the yeah. U.S., but in some countries. <laughs> in Korea, one can hope, have right? awesome virtual One can only mobile. dream. Yeah. Uh, why do we not have fiber yet? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, think, yeah. I think that... For people to, like, the, for a distribution of people having phones, like, for in 10 years for it not to be the case that everyone has VR and has made their own opinions about it, and I think then it will really just depend on the content. Like, if the content is sufficiently good, then everyone will use it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think the headset, that's something everyone's just going to have because, like, of the way things are going with the phones actually being your headset. Like, you, you kind of almost already have it now, except that you can't do anything useful on it, and it probably looks not that great if you stick it in a cardboard box, but almost everyone has a phone, and I can run, I can play some of our videos on my iPhone mm-hmm. in a cardboard box and look around, and it looks okay, um, you know, and I can do that now, and right now, anyone with already a smartphone and, you know, either going online and for... can get their own cardboard box and have that experience. And I think that all that really has to happen is there to be enough content and to be compelling enough, and everyone will carry around their, you know, mobile device. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that's part of why I was very excited about Gear VR and why I decided is, is because I don't see, like, and why I was, I was so frustrated with DK2 having so many wires is that I don't see the future of VR as being connected with a bajillion wires to a thing, um, and you can't take it anywhere, and it's not portable, and we're, we're already moving towards more portable media, so I see the future of VR as also being more portable. And so, to me, the Gear VR, even though it doesn't have that camera sensor that lets you actually move through space, feels more like what the future of VR is going to be to me. I absolutely agree, 100%. Um, Something like the Gear VR and other people are going to start making them. Um, It's going to move, you know, as fast as the iPhone did, which was very fast. Like, you forget maybe how recently that happened. Like, smartphones tore through the world instantly. (sighs) VR is going to do the same thing just, you know, in in five years, basically everyone who has a good smartphone right now is going to have something that's VR compatible, and they're going to use it mostly, I think, to talk to other people face-to-face virtually, um, to watch movies, even even flat media, even watching a flat movie when you don't have to be sitting in front of a screen, but you can, like, lie in your bed. When and you can, yeah, yeah. Well, just I've done like, that. When it's you really can good. get rid of the rest of the world, and I'm not saying I don't like interacting with people, but I'm saying that there's a lot of situations where you're, like, waiting in a waiting room, and, you know, there's crying kids because you're at the doctor's office and they're sick and they're not feeling good, or you're on the train. Like, there's a lot of situations where being able to just be in your own world is amazing. Yeah. Um, and, like, to me, like, that's the big thing that is going to sell VR in the short term, is that it really gives you the ability to easily, on the fly, go into your own world and do this own thing and not have any distractions. Mm-hmm. Um, like it we gets talked a little bit at that meetup about like, the, the sort of clinical applications of that, being able to like actually escape into a place that you consider like your happy place and being able to do that on demand. Yeah. Being, really mm-hmm. being able to go yeah. be in Mars rover. I want to be in Mars rover so bad. <laughs> right? you, don't, you don't even have to be human anymore once VR gets good enough. Like... All this embodiment stuff of, like, hand tracking. No, we want our abstract control, and I want to be a Mars rover. (laughs) An actual Mars rover. And I want to be an actual Mars rover, or at least simulate that. um, I'm with you. Uh, But, ladies, uh, we're going to start bringing things to a close. Uh, Do you have anything in mind that you've been holding back that you'd just like to release out there before we close things off? And how can people stay in touch? How can people follow up with what you guys are doing? Hi. We're Ella VR, and you can go to ellavr.com, E-L-E-V-R.com. We make tech posts all the time. We share all our stuff, open source, download our stuff, torrent our videos, do that. Nice. Um, and all that information will be in the show notes. But Yeah, and if you want to tweet at us, use hashtag LLVR, and we'll find it eventually. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, or you could... Find our actual Twitter handles. I'm at, at Emily Eichler. Yeah, I'm at Andrea Hoxley. I'm at by heart by heart. There's two of me. Oh, oh well, I will find the one that belongs to you, and I uh, will put that in the show notes. Uh, once again, thank you so much for your time. You guys have been true ladies and stalwarts of virtual reality. Um, yeah, thanks guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. I feel like clapping now. Yay! Yay! Good work, us. <laughs>